Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. I am extremely excited to welcome director David Fincher and his longtime collaborator, sound designer, Ren Kleiss, to the podcast to discuss their latest work, Mank. It's been my pleasure to know David and Ren and to have worked with them many, many times over the years. So it's a great pleasure to have them on the show. If you haven't seen Mank yet, it is almost like being transported back to the golden age of Hollywood as they tell the story of Herman Mankiewicz, the brilliant and only slightly self-destructive writer of Citizen Kane. David Fincher said his goal was to make this film, which his father wrote decades ago, and make it feel like it was an undiscovered um, artifact of the time, insisting for years that he wanted to make it in black and white, 133, and in mono. And I'd say that uh, he has come very close to accomplishing that objective all these years later. But he and sound designer Ren Kleiss had some more tricks up their sleeve to make it look and sound period appropriate and still amazing. And was it truly in mono? Let's find out. David Fincher, Ren Kleiss, thank you for joining us today to talk about Mank. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I was just thinking, I think my uh, the first time I read the script for Mank was probably, was it like, I want to say 1996? Early ninety seven. It, it it may have been it may have been that late. It actually may have been earlier than that. I mean, the first drafts that were circulating at Propaganda were probably ninety three or ninety four. But um, but it may have been yeah. It probably didn't get into uh, the flow of traffic until until two that, or three years later. Yeah, that all makes sense because I, I I think I remember we were in post production on the game. At the time, well, that would be '96. So yeah, yeah it would be. So, so that was the time that Polygram had said, "Yeah, let's let's make uh, let's make a movie um, about Herman Mankiewicz. Just let's make it in color." Right. Exactly. So I remember because I was post production. I was head of post production at, at Propaganda Films at the time, which is a company, obviously, David, that you were a founding director of. Yeah. And we were working on the game and Ren. That was my first time meeting you. I remember coming up to Sausalito to your studio and we went up to Skywalker Ranch together, which was the first time I had ever been at Skywalker Ranch. So that's a whole nother story. But oh, I, wow. remember, I remember reading the script. I remember reading the script from Mank, and I think David, I, we went up to your house for a meeting, and my main recollection of it was that I came away thinking, okay, he wants to make this in black and white, one three three, and mono. Yeah, that and was I, that 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 the, that was the earliest incarnation. Yeah, when we would get you with BNCRs and record with ribbon mics and. Exactly, thing. exactly. And here we are 20, you know, 20 plus years later watching With a bunch of plugins that do exactly that. <laughs> so this is a this podcast is really about how artists use technology to tell stories. So I wanted to just kind of like take a conceptual step back for a second okay. and ask. So this whole idea, like I, I've I've read you guys describe, you know, the look and feel of Mank as if you wanted it to be like somebody had just found these cans next to a print of Citizen Kane in the UCLA archive, and it turned out to be this movie about Herman Mankiewicz, and what, what is this thing? Yeah. But I guess from a storytelling standpoint, that, that conceit around the look and sound of the film that you ultimately arrived at, what does that do for the audience? What kind of like emotional response are you wanting to trigger in them by presenting the film in this way? 
Well, I mean, I, 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 I can speak to the, to the impetus, which was we had a very stylized um, kind of speech. You know, the, the, um, the characters speak very much in a vernacular and in a style that was, um, uh, you know, not ubiquitous, but certainly more um, uh, prevalent in the 19, late 30s and early 40s. As these guys, these writers that we were talking about, the, the Algonquinites who, who came West, as they sort of invented what we know as, you know, the Hollywood response to the three-act structure. And, and so it was, it, was a, it was, to my way of thinking, it was a way of sort of trapping this anachronistic patois in amber. It was a way of sort of making sense of it, if, the, if, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Absolutely. And actually, I think that sets up our friends at Netflix were really gracious enough to give us some clips uh, to kind of illustrate these points and to talk about. So I th let's just jump right in and watch the first clip. So I think this is pretty this is very close to the beginning of the movie. Um, Gary Oldman playing Herman Mankiewicz has just arrived. Uh, yeah. He's you, 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 the second scene in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, you have sequestered him in a dry town in Victorville so that he can write this damn script. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, uh, John Houseman is introducing him to the other folks in the house, and then he gets he gets his first call from Orson Welles. So let's take a listen. Peter, come in here, will you? This is Mrs. Alexander. She types 100 perfect words a minute and takes dictation like a clairvoyant. Rita Alexander, Herman Mankiewicz. How do you do, Mr. Mankiewicz? That's a big question. Well, since you like working nights, Rita here runs on London time. Her husband is one of our bold lads in the RAF. Flies, what is it, Rita? Spitfires? Hurricanes. My sympathy and prayers. And I beg your pardon? Given the speed, climb and turning radius of the Messerschmitt BF-109. I hope we won't need your sympathy, Mr. Mankiewicz. We'll do the praying and the fighting. I will meet with Orson Weekly. Keep him to date on our progress. We're expecting great things. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. I don't know that writer. Hello? Yes. Yes, he's right here. Well, you should have everything. If I've forgotten, there's a clipboard. Yes, hello? They're getting him. Oh, Wunderkind does have the gift of theatrical timing. Orson, hello, we just got in. Oh. Hello. Houseman tells me we have you just where we want you. Lucky me. How's the leg? Five bones connected to the hip bone. Excellent. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. I understand we've 90 days. Let's aim for 60. He's just cut a month. I used to do it in five for you with the mercury. This is leisurely. 60 days, and then we can noodle. Nothing like a good noodle. Is the reason you lobbed 30 days to run it past the RKO legal? I thought I told you, Mank. I have final cut, final everything. There are no studio notes. We'll have no one but ourselves to blame. 60 days and a noodle. 
Gotta run. I'm doing tests for Heart of Darkness. Oh, little that. Lesser Joe Conrad. If anyone should ask, tell them you're adapting. Oh, you don't know this sun-bleached sewer yet, my friend. Right when did Hollywood and Vine and a producer in Santa Monica reports a ruptured main. No, I don't know this bird. Not yet. I'm toiling with you in spirit, Mank. And I don't hear any typing. No notes. And then he turns 24. The first time I saw this, and I've watched it now a few times, I felt like, I realized what I felt like. I felt like I was in the Castro Theater watching an actual movie from the 40s. Bingo! So that's what you were going for. And like, even to the extent of like, I felt like there was a, the dialogue was slapping off the back wall, and I was, <laughs> I was you, hearing that back. You've been doing some research. Um, well, I've subsequently, know, I've, I've subsequently heard you guys talking about this. Yes, well, absolutely. It, I mean, Ren and I have had this ongoing conversation about this movie for thirty years, <laughs> and um, and and part of it was was um, excavating what the experience. Um, uh, needed to be for the ears. And, and one of the things that I, um, kind of slowly came to the realization of was that my experience of, um, classic Hollywood, you know, what, what would be Turner classic cinema, um, now is, is in some ways informed by, um, in terms of my memory is informed by, the revival house, you know, which is something that doesn't really exist anymore. And so that became sort of a, a layer of the onion removed from the shooting on the, on a soundstage in Hollywood. And then, and then post producing that movie, I came to the realization that part of what I was emotionally connected with was exactly that experience, you know, this, the second run, um, uh, movie house and the movie palace. And so I went to Ren and said, as if it's not going to be difficult enough to mix a movie in mono when we're used to 96 tracks across and three sidecars. Um, um, I now want to add another layer of, uh, distance, uh, to the to the mix. All right, Ren. I think that's a good time for you to step in and kind of explain to us, because <laughs> obviously it's 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 a, it's a really powerful effect. But I'm sure that you weren't able to just kind of like dial this in right away and hit it on the first try. Like how how did you go about accomplishing this? Yeah. Um, well, it was it was interesting because <laughs> we uh, we kind of early on. David, when he was filming, he wanted the dailies to kind of represent that sound, the old-fashioned sound. Um, but we we knew that we couldn't bake that in to the dailies, and so we we kind of came up with a way of uh, figuring out what what, what uh, Citizen Kane's soundtrack was, which was basically a really limited dynamic range and frequency range, and with some sort of weird spikes of, uh, you know, mid ranges sort of poking through and we built a filter 
sort of as a quick fix that Kirk Baxter could put on his his uh, Adobe Premiere so that when David walked in, he could kind of get a sense of what it was going to be like. But what was interesting for us is that we actually, uh, as David, you know, he knows the script upside down and backwards. And I remember him saying, you know what, I know this so well, but I can't even understand what people are saying sometimes. Do you think it's too much? And that's when we had the realization. And it was right around when we were about to kind of go into a temp mix. And and um, there was a little bit of worry that, um, oh, no, maybe this isn't going to work. And we can't understand. And Gary's often hard to understand. And we need to we need to figure that out. And so we ended up going through a, a kind of making the mix into three stages, Glenn. So we ended up mixing the movie uh, as if we would normally mix the a film in full bandwidth and kind of disregarding this whole sound of, of a movie being old fashioned. And the reason why we decided to do it that way was that then we knew what we had in terms of the fidelity of the performances and the audio quality and that we knew, okay, that line is intelligible now that it's cleaned up. We weren't looking through and listening through the, the patina and becoming confused and uh, right. anxious. So once we did that was once we did that that was uh, the first step was to mix the film clean. Somewhere exists, uh, although David we will never release it, uh, is a, is the clean version of this mix. Listen, you know? it, 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 it sounds more like hunting than that right. than it was. I mean, we 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 sort of we we kind of knew what we wanted to put our arms around and. And the reason that I was asking to hear it degraded and or processed um, was for exactly the reason that it became apparent to us that we had gone too far, which is, um, and this was something that I, I couldn't foresee, and I'm sure, Ren, you probably foresaw it, but, but the reason that I wanted to, I mean, I would have preferred to have headphones on set that had the timber and the notching and the um and the processing of the of the aural envelope um just because you know i was asking people talk really fast you don't wait for this you're not waiting for his response you're getting onto your next line you're and 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 what we learned from sort of clamping that that um you know eq onto it was that every person's voice responds differently to this to this envelope that you put it in, and that was something that I I would have thought you know, um, you know Joseph Cotton's voice and you know Orson Welles' voice could be recorded at the same time with the same you know limited ribbon mics of the period, and then that would be through the through the chain to the optical soundtrack that would congeal them and what we found was that it actually sort of separated certain mm -hmm. characters there were people's voices who just cut right through it and required no no labor intensive rethinking at any point and there was and then there was gary's voice and there was a couple of other voices and gary's voice is critical because he has 98 percent of the dialogue mm -hmm. um so that was one of the things that you know i i insisted on hearing it that way not to make myself more neurotic because I don't need any help in that respect, but um, just so that w I could have a, 
an, a response to 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 what that would sound would be like and what we learned from just doing a clamp on to the to the um, premiere um, audio tracks was this is going to be this Harder is going to be a, think. a garment yeah, that has to be tailored for every single body and we and right. that's when we realized that we needed to kind of go back and mix it full bandwidth and then then once we did that uh, then we went to the next step two step two and then there's step three which is the the final step but step two is then doing what david just described which is to apply this old-fashioned sound to the music separately from the dialogue from the sound effects the foley the ambiences and so forth so it's not just a global adjustment that you made correct to the, to, a, to the remixes you're having to go in we, and tailor we did it. that to we did that to begin with and then drove ourselves crazy and then realized that we we're gonna end up with 54 stamps <laughs> yeah we ended up with uh nine yeah just for the latitude and then uh, and then at the very end and in terms of the thing that you were just mentioning a moment ago uh glenn about it sounds like being in the castro theater um we ended up finally making a a, a, a congealed mix and it was only at the very very end of step two where we uh, then played the entire mix back in the scoring stage, which of course you know very well. The Skywalker uh, shirt. Yeah. And we set up a bunch of microphones and re recorded the reverb as if it was the, the Castor Castor. Theater. Yeah. So you 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 gave a tip of the hat to Walter Merch and you worldized your mix. We totally worldized it. And, <laughs> and we tip all of our caps to Walter. But but yeah. but it was it was more, you know, it, it was an interesting um experiment because you know, I listen, I'm willing if, if there's a if there's a new plugin that's available that you could put oh, let's click it to yield timing and hands free, you I'm willing to do that. I mean I'm not I, I'm not the kind of person that says let's let's figure the longest possible way around. But um but Ren, I mean you, you, you I mean I could see the look on his face when we were in the control room at the um um scoring stage and when we started to kind of really like fill the surrounds with the slap of the of the scoring stage it, in addition to you know our lcr which was l and r were for music and c was for everything else and then the the reverb which is is all too diminishing of of what it actually was when when we listened to it digitally and we listened to it on the scoring stage it was just markedly um more human more real it came to life every yeah yeah, I yeah. Mean, we, it was you know that it was one of those moments that you know when you get excited about something and you just love it it was like oh my god this is great you know and um you know it was that kind of giddy feeling of like we finally got there and it's and uh it was very satisfying to to actually worldize it the old-fashioned way you know we, and we did Glenn, we did try to, and we, uh, you know, add digital reverb, and we did that. You know, and while we were mixing, um, I, Dave would call up and say, "How, how's the full bandwidth mix going?" 
and we would say it's gone great, and we'd send him some stuff, and he was. Would, would he say? Would he say it derisively? Has the full bandwidth mix going? Not at all. I'm supportive of <laughs> of all interim <laughs> steps, but but he would then, you know, but hey, can I hear that little bit in that you just pre-dubbed or just final rather uh, through the patina? And so then I would sneak off and 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 start working on the, the treatment using the stems that we just had printed. And we went through a, many, many, many versions of it, mm-hmm. kind of starting off not intense enough, going too far, coming back and honing it, and then really working on individual, uh, the music differently from the dialogue and so forth. We added noise. Uh, we had sure. distortion, optical flutter, optical, optical flutter. yeah, optical, right? As if, as if there's no crackles, as if the the loop isn't quite set right on the on the projector. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. only happens like eight times out of ten. Um, <laughs> but it, it, but it did. I mean, I remember like sitting in the and it's that moment, you know, when you when I was a kid and I would walk into the Rafael Theater and you would push the back door open. It's that sound that you first hear of a movie theater and. The screen is way over there and it's doing its job. It's emanating, but it's what the balcony is catching. It's what the exit signs are reflecting. It's, it's, you know, over by the drinking fountain. It's that, it's that thing that you used to get when you walk through those back doors that, you know, make everybody in the back of the theater turn to look at you. It's that sense of that. And it was, um, yeah, it was like, it was palpable. Yeah. I'm really glad that you described it that way. Cause I think, you know, I, a lot of people are, obviously you made the film for Netflix. A lot of people are watching it on their home screens. Mm-hmm. I've watched a couple different ways. One time I was watching it on my iPad with AirPods mm-hmm. and, and I still felt like I was in a movie theater for the yeah. exact reason that you were describing. But the fact that you guys were so careful and tailored it so carefully is the reason why, as opposed to when I go to the Castro theater and watch an old movie, I could actually understand all the dialogue in Mank, which I, you know, which is something that you lose in some of those big old movie houses. I mean, you guys know this better than like, it's the premiere at at man's Chinese. Like this might be the worst theater ever devised (laughs) for human motion picture consumption. And yet people still love it, but you can't hear like, but it has a lot of that. Like, you know, if we, we didn't have a plug-in for eight-foot concrete columns right in the middle of the of the theater, but we we would have we would have tried it. Yeah, it's like the Alice Tully Hall in New York. Oh. I mean, you know, it's oh. it's yeah. You know, you every single mix decision of adding reverb to your mix all of a sudden goes out the window <laughs> when you're in those rooms. Like, what yeah. were we doing? You know. Is this supposed to be underwater? No, really. <laughs> Weird. Okay. Uh, yeah, I had to. I had to say when I when I was running Skywalker, uh, Pixar always wanted to premiere their movies at the Castro Theater, and every time they would come to us and they would say, "What can we do to fix the acoustics in the Castro?" And I would just say, "Raise it, it to the ground, or <laughs> to the ground, and rebuild it." Yeah. But of course, but of course, it's a grand movie palace. You can't do that. Um, well, it is kind of shocking that you know we 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 talk about you know the movie going experience, the movie going experience. And, and for the most part, all of those theaters that you, the Los Angeles theater, the Egyptian, like all these theaters that we would, you know, the Castro, the, the, even the, the North point was, was pretty great. Um, 
I mean, it sounded pretty great. But um, but for the most part, these were burlesque. These were these were not optimized for the projection of sound into a space so that everyone had the best seat in the house. They were burlesque theaters that were re- built as live theaters. Yeah, right? were re- repurposed for the flickers. You know, right. So you you. Was there ever any discussion about on set trying to record with vintage microphones, or or you knew you knew that was, you needed to get? I was easily talked out of that. Um, I just <laughs> well, we lit. Yes, I was talked out of that in in like four seconds. But I there was part of me that you know <laughs> saw the saw the giant boom with the RCA Victor logo. You know this huge paddle of a of a microphone for everybody to talk into. But, you know, I can be talked out of things that are stupid. I just can't be talked out of things that are, that I have a, a emotional response to. Yeah. I mean, we were talking to Drew yesterday and, and uh, Drew Coonan who recorded all the production uh, on set with David and Michael Primer, his boom operator. And, you know, we, David's right. I mean, you know, the idea of having a, a ribbon microphone, away from the actor and capturing the sound. But, you know, as Drew said, uh, mentioned that, you know, those Citizen Kane, as an example, was, was all on set mostly. And so you, you could have a quiet environment to do that. And obviously that was the technology that they had, but David's film has got a lot of snappy dialogue, a lot of actors speaking at once or closely and overlapping. So to, to, to be able to, have that sequence like for example in the in the writing room when um, charlie letter enters everybody's talking all at once and you know we really needed to be able to retain everybody's individual dialogue with their own individual mics versus the one ribbon mic 10 feet away well you know um you've talked about citizen kane i think when people when people think about Citizen Kane or discuss Citizen Kane, there's a lot of attention that's paid to how groundbreaking and revolutionary it was from a visual standpoint. Totally, but right. yeah. But what about the sound? What what was what was Kane what was Kane doing that was interesting from a sound perspective? And did you steal any ideas from it? I mean, I'll answer from my side. There's no doubt that um, Orson Welles came from radio. Like he just had an understanding of pre-lapping and how things can overlap and how you can take one idea and somebody can mention something and that can spark your movement into the next. I mean, he was, I mean, for all of the visual stuff aside, um, you know, what the guy just had an amazing ear. Like he had an amazing ear for, he made the point and he moves on. And it was so deft, you know, for a 25 year old in that, in that seat for the first time, you know, you, you have to understand it not only from just like the, um, the broad brushstrokes, but, but he came at these, he came at these ideas of montage, not from the kind of Eisenstein, he came at it from an all, from an aural perspective, you know, mm. it wasn't just about, I can take these two images or I'm going to go from this image to this image, or I'm going to dissolve these two images together. I'm going to fade. There was all of that. But then he also had this, you know, he was able to take the pace of this thing up to 11 because he understood once you've said that we're going to move on to here. And then the music comes in and, you know, we, we, we talked about this um, last night with um, Trent Atticus. You know, there's stuff in this 
And this movie, when you look at it, there's Bernard Herrmann is doing a lot of like Flintstones. There's a lot of, you know, there's like (laughs) these weird little cues that are almost like a laugh track today. He, I mean, this is 1940. So he was, he, look, he used it all. And he used it all in, in, in service of letting you know exactly what it is that you need to know, as much spin as you need, and then you're on to the next idea. So everything you said is absolutely true. And where where we came from was more of the dilemma of trying to get it to sound similar in the same vein, trying to get it to sound old fashioned, but really remembering that despite the fact that Citizen Kane sounds old, it was the effort wasn't to make it sound old. No. <laughs> the effort was to make it's it state of the art. State of the art. And so that was that was a, kind of a large part of our aesthetic was okay, no, we need to make it sound as good as we can possibly make it. Um and uh so but but then to degrade it was another you know you kind of we we split in some ways because uh, because it, you know, you when you watch an old film, you think, "Oh, well, it's bad," and they didn't care. No, nothing could be further from the truth. On Citizen Kane, no, it, right. it was a state of the art for 1939. When yeah, it was right. and um, and 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 again, the the notion of appreciating something through this veil was, I mean, you could you could make this movie without doing that, but it felt to me. You know, this was the argument for black and white. This was the it, Chinatown is no less of a brilliant movie because it's shot in color and it's supposed to take place in 1937. What they were doing was revisionist noir. What we were doing was trying to make sense out of why is everyone talking like this? It's like, well, you know, Jack wrote a script that was paying loving, you know, um, homage to the kind of movies that he grew up with. And, and even though there were times when I would argue with him and say, is the only reason that Rita Alexander exists is to have her feelings hurt and then her to lose her husband <laughs> off the coast of Norway. And he was like, yeah, this is a kind of, that's what these movies were. Like when you start to get into the second world war, these were the, these were these kinds of tropes and, you know, he uses it, throughout the entire movie just to get to a great joke, which is, are you ever serious about anything? Only about something funny. So, right. yeah. Well, let's take a look at our second clip. This is from the, um, this is from the election night. This is a montage where Mank, for seemingly no reason whatsoever, has made a very large bet that's going to go south on him. All right, so there's a lot going on in that sequence. Um, and obviously I would characterize that as a sort of a music-driven sequence as opposed to a lot of the rest of the film. But um, I'm curious, yeah, talk to us about working with Trent and Atticus on the score for this film and, and how the mix for that particular sequence came uh, took shape. Yeah, the, well, the music is 
really um, very powerful in that sequence. And they had, Trenaticus had actually sent that cue in as a, twice. The first was their very high resolution final version, which was not actually done with an orchestra. It was done the way that they normally do things uh, in-house. And then they later did it uh, with an orchestra. But the, the, the effect of it was is very is pretty much the same. And Kirk actually took, Kirk Baxter took that m music that they sent and then cut with that music. What's interesting, though, uh, to note is that um, the sequence was at this particular length. And as at its go, uh, it was shortened. And so the beginning of that sequence and how it does dovetails from the music, the source cue that, that then goes into the, the ending is, is something that we uh, really enjoyed working on because the, the music actually originally kept going. And uh, David came up with the idea, well, what if it had, was sort of a full stop so that we get into this realization from Mank that it's like, okay, I just lost $20,000. <laughs> 24. Oh, right. 24,000. 20, 24 in, which in, in 1934. 1934 right? a, yeah, that's a house in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Or $24,000 just to yeah, as it is. <laughs> it's still a lot of money. Think about how much money we could have made investing $24,000 in GameStop, you know? Oh, yeah. Just last week. <laughs> right. it, 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 I think that the, that sequence is, it, you know, is probably carried m more by music, um, n not... Um, because we didn't feel it, it was the, it just became the lifeblood of it. It became the marrow of it. And it just seemed to support everything without, and, and, you know, I, I, I think it's an interesting thing to note that we're so used to 7.1 or at most, we're so used to having all of this, um, ability to assault the 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 audience and and when when we're forced to come down to one piece of pipe to deliver you know there's just only so much that you can deliver out of that center speaker um and you know i think i'm speak, speaking for us both but ren chime in i, I was shocked to learn uh, how many darlings had to be sacrificed at the altar of, of mono. You know, we're so used to being able, we'll just fit that in and move that to the surrounds and we'll do that. And the, um, and when you, when you're forced to truly pick what's important to you, because you only have so much bandwidth to deliver, you know, important data that the audience needs to have in order to have any level of engagement it, it it made us at first it made us crazy and then later i, I think it was really sort of a, a gift to you know our aesthetic in that you know probably we've used you know bandwidth as a crutch in the past <clears throat> not not to say that you know seven part of the part of the initial conversation and part of the vibe of what you experience when you watch that movie is all of the sound that's filtering all the, you know, jeopardy that's playing next door and, and, um, and the kids screaming down the hall and the, and all of that stuff that, that we had, that we've been using in the last 30 years to, to make 
movies, we suddenly had to just go scale it all down to go, okay, you have a portal. Right. You know, literally, you don't even have a, you know, you don't have a picture window anymore. You have a portal. So what when you open this, what are you going to get from it? And um, and it was really, it was confounding initially. It was frustrating for me. But in in a measured way, we, we got to, um, it forces you to be essential. Right. What is the essence? What are we trying to communicate? And yeah. what, you know, if 17 things just muddy the, the water, what are the three that you have to hear? Also part of the aesthetic, Glenn, uh, from your earlier comment and question about dialogue, um, when we had our initial mixes, they, there was a lot of sound uh, in many places, not just this sequence, but other sequences. And we, for sake of clarity of dialogue specifically, and when Gary Oldman was speaking, we had to dodge and burn a lot of that sound, as David just described, out because the centerpiece is the, the script, the dialogue at that moment. And all of those background sounds that are really wonderful, like when he's speaking to Orson Welles over the phone in the, in the first clip, um, you know, we still snuck in, you know, stage bells and stage hands and people, you know, building <laughs> sets and all of that. And that's there. But, um, you know, if in some of the earlier iterations of the mix, you know, we had this, this, this desire to have like a, Orson Welles is on set and he only has a few minutes to talk to, to Mank sure. and people are banging and, you know, getting ready for the next, uh, you know, setup and so forth. Um, so yeah, a recalibration of, of what we normally would do was a huge part of the realization of this particular mix. And it's weird how even limiting yourself, you know, if, if, if you're hitting the right notes, if you're hitting the right nails, um, you still have the sense of it without the bandwidth. Without having to do the full thing. Yeah, it's, I'm glad that you brought that up, Ren. Um, I think that one of the things that I've always felt about your work in general, and specifically your work with David, is the sense, you guys have a really keen understanding of how to use sound to paint the world outside of the frame and to make the world that you're, that you're taking the audience to much bigger through the use of sound. And, the, you know, David, you mentioned Seven. Um, you know, I go around and I teach a lot of film students uh, about how do you sound more creatively for storytelling. And I got to tell you, one of the most, one of the best clips I have ever found to communicate this concept is uh, from very close to the beginning of Seven. And it's right before the main title sequence with Morgan Freeman in his apartment when he sets the metron, metronome yeah. Yeah. and goes to sleep. And you've got, you know, Ren, you, we never see anything, but sonically you paint the entire world right outside his apartment that's just kind of pressing down on him. And it, it's sound that elicits an emotional response and also does a great deal of storytelling, which well, I mean, it's, it's also, it's more complicated than that because part of what we're talking about is, is somebody who's, you know, John Doe is hunting stragglers, you know, and the notion is, and the thing that's always terrifying about serial killers is we live on top of each other. I mean, we live in such close proximity. You know, it's one thing when you're, you'd, the notion that that people can be culled from the herd on their way to the 7-Eleven when they're going to walk past 40 people on the street, um, that's what was terrifying. The, the fact that this is a guy who's working in plain sight. So 
as part of the launch into this world, we need to say, this is a really dense city. There's no reason, you know, the scary thing about Jeffrey Dahmer was he was doing this all on the third floor, uh, you know, right off the elevator. And people are like, what is that smell? (laughs) You know, um, so, so that was part of, um, part of the context for talking about the serial killer was talking about how does it happen in modern society when we are, you know, when we can't find a quiet corner. Right. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, what's, what's really wonderful about working on these projects is that we get to discuss characters. So in addition to what David said, Somerset's character, he's basically got a few more days of work as a, as a detective and he is moving out of the city to the country. And, and, um, you know, when we were working on the, on that film, um, there was a whole sequence where we, we see Somerset's, it's no longer in the film, but we see uh, his house in the countryside that he's, his dream home, his escape. And, uh, and David was very keen on letting us know that he's ready also to leave this environment just as much as what's lurking beyond the other wall. It's also how he's, how Somerset's character is reacting to his environment literally counting the seconds to when he can leave. And we needed, we needed to really make that, those two feelings, the one of the fear of the the serial killer, but also of his despair. So, you know, and, and sound just seemed like a good place to, to, to show, to, to to demonstrate that. Um, And hats off to Andy Walker too, because part of what the whole metronome is, is something that you can concentrate on that's repetitive and and that helps you drown out. I mean, in a in a weird way, for the character, it's therapeutic. It allows right. him to sleep. So yeah, and Andy Andy in that script. No, I know no, now we're talking seven, but <laughs> but also in his writing. To, to Dave's point, to hats off to Andy. There are many places in that screenplay where Andy's actually writing about sound. Yeah. So right. it it's not just us here on this call it's the writer who's writing those mo those sound cues into the screenplay which is wonderful i'm really glad you brought that up because we talk about that a lot which is like it, it great sound moments don't happen by accident on the mixing stage at the end of the at the end of the post-production process they have to be written into the script david you have to direct them that way on set you have to make room for that to happen in the edit so that yes. Ryan can come in and do his thing yeah. Well, and, and you have to make room for it or you have to understand, like, you know, the opening to, to Social Network was, okay, we're in a bar. Well, how, how much are we in a bar? Well, are we in a bar where we can only, where we hear two people perfectly? Or are we in a bar, you know? And, and so my, my take on it was, let's start this bar scene under the Sony logo and, and, and let's have to fight to hear these people because that's what it is to be in a bar and they keep missing each other anyway in the text. They're sort of like, what did you mean? So it naturally gives you the, it, it gives you the ammo at least to, to build a case for something that's hard to perceive and something that's hard to sort of track. You know, she's talking about, you know, 
sometimes I don't know, sometimes you talk about this thing and I don't know what we're aiming at. So we, we embraced that and, and made it, and it not only, it does two things. It not only, it not only says you're in a real bar with real people, but it also says, pay attention. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a lot of chat in this movie and these people are going to be talking fast. Well, you do that. I, I feel, David, like this is a pet peeve of yours, like bar scenes where people are having <laughs> quiet, intimate. Because you did it, you did, and then it happens again in Mindhunter. I mean, look, I feel like we could spend an hour just talking about Mindhunter, but that's you know, let's that, not. That's that's for another. Let's that's not for say another, we did. That's for another conversation. But before we move on, um, there's there's another thing I want to touch on, which is I think one of the things that's unusual and distinctive, Ren, is that you're the sound designer of the film. But you you have a very broad, you know, kind of understanding and treatment of the entire soundscape of the film. So when the mix happens, you go over and you mix the music, which is very, very unusual. I don't know of anybody else who does that. And Nathan Nance comes in and he's actually the effects mixer. So you kind of everything you've built, you hand off to Nathan to mix and then you put on a different hat. How do you how do you kind of balance that? And, you know, because I, I that's that's an interesting puzzle to me. Well, you know, that's I. I Thanks for asking that question. I think that, um, yeah, I think it's a really healthy way of approaching the soundtrack because I, I feel that um, we all work on our portion of and our contribution to the things that uh, to the film that we're, we're we're helping to be as great as possible. But inevitably. Um, what it is that you're doing on the film or what, uh, you know, what any, any department is, is adding to the film. They, they're so focused on that, that they're sometimes maybe missing the, the film itself. And specifically with sound and the mix, um, I think it's a, it's a good thing to let go of the sound faders in a way, because um, it's, your contribution and there would be a tendency to push that forward, you know, in the mix, but holding the music faders. What's wonderful about that is that I have to learn about the music and learn about what the music is communicating and have a real understanding for it and go through every single track that Trenaticus have made for us and study it and learn about what it is that they're trying to communicate with the music. And that's a wonderful place to finally arrive to because you always think that you understand what the role of the music is. But it's not only until you start mixing the music that you really understand it. And then you're then you understand, or and then I understand that, oh wait, you know, the all the sounds that we built that are is hitting this same emotional place, maybe we can shift that off of this beat, or maybe we don't need that sound, or maybe there's a way to dovetail a bit more elegantly now that I understand what the music is doing. So I think it helps the soundtrack, Glenn. I think that it helps uh, uh, knowing what the film is about and what the soundtrack is about ultimately and not being selfish to one's own contribution. That's great. I, uh, before I knew, when I knew we were going to be talking, I put out a call on social media to see if anybody had any burning questions for you. (laughs) Only and the we, burning ones. Yeah, only the burning ones. Only the ones that are on fire. <laughs> only the ones um, that are end when ah. <laughs> so I, I did want to. Co- I, I want to work a couple of these in. So we got a call. Uh, we got a, a question from Deacon Turner. 
Uh, he said, I want to understand how new distribution and consumption environments affect sound choices and execution. Obviously, with Mank, you guys knew that this was going to go on. You knew that this was going to go on Netflix. Yeah, we knew um, this was going to be seen on a phone. So we. Uh, okay, you said so it. I didn't. We mix for gonna, this. We mix on a phone on on air. So no. how did that? So are you thinking about that as you're building the track and mixing, or are you primarily concerned about the? I want to maintain the the sanctity of the theatrical experience. I don't believe that there, I, I mean, my, my entire, you know, treaties um, on everything that I've um, been lucky enough to do with Netflix has always been, um, it's a 45 foot screen. Just think of it that way. You know, they're, 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 we didn't cut it. We didn't cut any corners. On, we, we don't, I don't direct any differently. I don't expect anything that's, uh, I, I don't expect any less out of cast members in House of Cards than I do cast members in Gone Girl, and 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 so literally, I I don't differentiate. I I feel like you know, first of all, you know, from a QC standpoint and from a just an engineering standpoint, the delivery of images and sound at Netflix. I mean, the QC at Netflix is as good or better by 10 times than any studio that I've ever worked with. I mean, from, I mean, from a pure, like, you know, noise floor signal, um, uh, um, standpoint, they are, they're total Nazis about it. And, and I love that. And, and we don't, I mean, I will go in and on Mindhunter, we will go in and paint out signs for, for, um, you know, uh, uh, fast food change that didn't exist in 1979. We would, we would take that stuff out because I don't, a hundred inch plasma is the same thing as a 45 foot screen at the DGA as far as I'm concerned. So, um, from purely selfish, um, I don't differentiate in any way, shape, or form. You don't, yeah, cut, any, you don't cut any differently. You know, the, the pacing of the edit doesn't change if you nope. know that people are going to watch it off on a phone. Nope. We do change the, our monitoring levels. Yes. Uh, when we're mixing, uh, we, um, so we're, even though we mix this in, in the Kurosawa Mix A room at, at the ranch, we did change our monitoring levels to uh, more near-field levels. We, we even contemplated bringing in near-field monitoring, but it, it just didn't make any sense given how it was just too difficult. Um, and in terms of the QC, Dave's absolutely right uh, with Netflix. It's so funny too, because the QC report would come back and it'd be like, there's crackling noise. <laughs> yeah. In the center yeah, panel, there's a changeover <laughs> mark. You may want to yeah. clean out. So right. you'd be like, you'd be like, have you watched the movie? Yeah. yeah. There's a there's an echo in the rear surrounds. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we would get the correct. We would get yeah. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, we we would um, you know, we we because we were fortunate enough to have the time to to and the extra time. We we, we took an additional three weeks. Uh, Mono. Who knew? Yeah, um, we did. We would check it on laptops. Uh, we would uh, print it out, uh, make a, a low row QuickTime, and 
play it on a phone and, you know, or even, you know, on picks, we would play it back and check it, you know. So there was a lot of, so even though we were always mixing it for large theater slash uh, near field, we would all, we would definitely always be thinking about, eh, well, let's make sure it sounds loud enough, you know. And of course, yeah. we have delivery requirements that we have to meet in terms of loudness right. and so forth. So our hands are tied in some respect that way. You know, we, we, we have to be within a certain range uh, for it to well, actually. I, I'm just, I was simply pointing out that, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people think, oh, you know, streaming is somehow the redheaded stepchild of, of content distribution. And that couldn't be further from the case. You know I mean? These guys, <laughs> they care, you know, mm-hmm. and they are, and, you know, they had our backs and, and I'm thrilled with that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I know a lot of people and it, and it came up a couple of times, a lot of people uh, are focused on this, this issue, this kind of conceit of the film being in mono. That's not exactly the case. I and mean, you kind of touched on it earlier, but uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if you're willing to talk a little bit more about how you kind of cheated and it's not quite mono. Sure. I mean, David came up with a great name called Monorama, which, which we love. <laughs> Monoscape. And so it was Monorama and then it became Monoscape. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, the truth of the matter is um, we, we cheat absolutely. And we, um, in the clip that we just watched, there's even a little subwoofer in one moment when, when a, a, I think it's a cigarette or something, a, a, a flash bulb goes off. So we will cheat absolutely, and and the echo uh, is only in the surrounds, uh, in the rear. So that right there technically isn't mono, is it? No. Um, but I think it's more of the of the uh, aesthetic. When we say mono, it's our aesthetic. In other words, we did cram most of the soundtrack in the center channel. Absolutely. Uh, dialogue, sound effects, ambiences, which you wouldn't normally put in the center channel. Music, uh, of course, as we just mentioned, we did, we we started in the middle and then we ran into a lot of the problems that David is describing, which is how do you, we we had a limited pipe to put all the information through. And by spreading the music to the left and right, it was an interesting choice. We're like, okay, this is kind of great. You know, we we now have a new new way of doing mono. But yeah, it's... um, I think it's more the the aesthetic is mono. Technically speaking, no, we, we're cheating constantly, but um, but the feeling of it being mono is is really, I think, I think is preserved. That's what's important, and and yeah. and that 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 thing that I called out when we first started talking about, I felt like I was getting dialogue slap off the back wall. That's coming to me from the re- reverb and the surround, right? Yeah. That's how you achieve that right. effect, yeah. which is absolutely, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I got a couple of questions in here about your working relationship and, you know, I'd rather not talk about that. Well, David, I am going to put you on the spot. I'm going to say like, like, obviously you guys, you know, Ren has done every movie that you've ever made, except for that first one that we won't talk about. Yeah. Because there was nepotism involved, but yeah, go ahead. But what makes Ren a great sound designer? Why do you keep going back to him? Uh, I'm going to give you an excuse to sing Ren's praises for yeah, a second. It's manifold, you know, and, and, and this is another thing that's interesting about like um, the people who have um, 
done music for us um, um, in that um, one of the things that I find so um, endlessly amusing and interesting and I learn from every single time is, you know, what Trent and Atticus do um, is not just music. It It's kind of this, it's a sonic world, you know, and it has, and it has um, memory and it has um, uh, hidden, you know, there, there are aspects of it that, that are things that the characters are trying to hide. It's, they make music that is actually not only textural and supportive of the text, but it's also subtextual. And, and the thing that I love about the mix of them with Ren is that he's also, he's, he's not thinking of it as, well, I've got 25% of the experience, you know, that I'm sort of responsible for. Sound um, permeates and leaks and seeps into everything. And to ignore it as something that can either support an idea or negate an idea um, to, to, to not embrace it and try to get your arms around the, the hope of, um, of creating something that is uh, um, uh, not only experiential in the moment, but also can be revisited and hopefully can inform um, the narrative um, seems to me that that seems to me to be the, that's the goal. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've known each other since 1980, 1981, something like that. You and, were children. Yes, almost. And uh, he was. <laughs> but um, but uh, we've always been talking about this. We've always been talking about, like, why do people, why is post-production like this can that got kicked down the down the street and around the corner and then, oh, here it is. Oh, it's time to mix. It never occurred to me that you should or would want to treat that process with indifference. And I'm always looking um, to collaborate with people who will take as seriously or more seriously their chance to, inf you know, it takes a lot to turn the narrative of a movie. It's a bit like an ocean liner. And, and you want to make sure that when you leave the room, that the people that you've entrusted this thing to care as much or more about it than, than you do and are willing to, to do the, to make the effort to dot the I's, cross the T's and, you know, sort the gnat out of pepper. And, and, and I feel like, you know, I feel like, you know, Ren's not a, He's not a slider guy. He's not a knob guy. He's not a headphone guy or a mic guy. He's a storyteller. And, and he just concentrates on the part of it that, um, that oftentimes gets um, overlooked. And that, to me, was always a tragedy. And, and so on Seven, when I finally had the clout to say, no, 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 I'm working with this guy, um, we got to kind of begin the process of, of, 
of reaffirming for certainly for the people who are financing the, the movies that I was lucky enough to make, um, why this is not only production value, um, because that's just a bean counter way of looking at it. Um, it's beyond production value. Sound is, is, an, is a portal into a stranger's mind that is incredibly influential. And if we don't avail ourselves of this access, um, then we're stupid and we should die. Um, so, <laughs> in the immortal words <laughs> of Chris, but um, but but I I just think it's like you know there's nothing more fun than getting to share all of the pre-production conversations with somebody that you adore and who is going to say, well, keep this in mind because you're going to go, he's right. Um, There's that aspect of it. And then there's also, you know, I I don't have uh, many um, cheerleaders (laughs) um, in, in my corner that are as, um, succinct experienced and and capable who can say no 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 i see what you're saying give me three or four days to and let me show you because i think because that's that's what you need you you need as much help as you can get and and especially with somebody who's going to take it and run with it you know and not just go is this what you want is it you know it's not just to have stuff reflected back to you it's to it's to impart something, and that's why we don't normally speak, and we don't speak in terms of frequency, and we don't speak in terms of copper, or you know, we speak in terms of this needs to feel like that, or this needs to be about you know that thing when you finally you're standing in line at the grocery store and you go, oh my god, and just by the sound of it, it's two o'clock in the morning. How do we impart? How do we? It's going to be night outside the windows. It's going to be fluorescent lighting. How do we let people know this is three in the morning? And right. and Ren's the guy who will say, let me bake on that a little bit and let me come back to you. What if it's this kind, you know? And so that, that that's what it is. It's it's beyond collaboration. It's I, I'm able to um, work with a genius who, who, who can... Um, uh, define or articulate in advance and then deliver on a sonic world that is complete thought out. Um, it's dense. It's, uh, the weave of it is, uh, it's not a threadbare thing. It is, it's a complete vision or, not a vision, but a, a complete, complete, yeah, a complete and, and 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 to my mind, that is something that has been, uh, you know, in some ways, sort of overlooked in terms of the importance of 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 storytelling. You know, a lot of times it's like, well, how do we keep them awake? Does this go up to thirteen? You know, it's like <laughs> I'm interested in something that, um, you know. Ren's sounds are as musical as Trent Atticus's music is worldizing and and 
and completing of, of the, of the uh, envelope. And so, and it's exciting to put those guys together because um, they solve problems before you're even aware of them. You know, you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we need to do that because of this. And you go, oh, okay. Well, just one more thing I don't have to worry about. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. Ren Kleiss saves David Fincher's movies. That's, yeah. That's no, I appreciate that. But no, that's not true. Oh, it is. Yeah. David, while I've got you, I would love to ask you a question about Dolby Vision. I, I'll say this. I, th I think it's, it's, it's something that can be used effectively and has to be um, very uh, carefully uh, incorporated because, you know, a lot of, you know, you look at a movie like Being There, which can't be a more perfect movie, and you see what Caleb was doing, you know, in that era with tracing paper on the windows and getting this beautiful sort of soft. Um, you can't look at that stuff in Dolby Vision. Like, you know, you can't trace a window anymore. And, mm -hmm. and because, you know, you can't have 780 nits <laughs> at, through the curtains next to somebody who's standing in in. So it's a very, it's a tricky proposition. You know, we use it, but we, I think we kind of limit it at about 350 nits um, because it can be, you know, I mean, like, I would be interested to see what Close Encounters looks like in, in Dolby Vision because that's a movie, you could actually blind people in a theater. <laughs> that would be, you know, that may be, um, that may be, uh, it may be a problem, but I, listen, I'm totally, I don't see any reason for 8K. I don't think that most people who know what they're talking about can see the difference between 4K and 8K. I don't, I think you can stop. 4K is fine. I think bit depth is where we need to focus and dynamic range. And, and, um, and we get that. And, and when we can make really scalable um, uh, uh, improvements, to, you know, I'd, I want to get to 20 bit depth and I want to get to, um, you know, I, I want to see 25 stops of dynamic range. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, to your point, you know, if you have a Ferrari, you don't always have to drive at 180 miles an hour, right? But if you have a Ferrari and you, and, and you live in a place that has a lot of speed bumps, then you're stupid, <laughs> right? Because then you're just getting the, then you're just taking the thing in to get, a, get the tires rebalanced every four or five weeks. So it's just, it's horses for courses. And I, and I, and I do think it's a beautiful thing, um, you know, depending on how, but, but just making stuff, you know, inordinately bright um, can be distracting. I was just curious, like, what is David going to do with the detail in the dark ranges? Like, well, well he's going to, he's going to shoot in the toe from now on, you know? Well, and, and look, that's where, to my way of thinking, that's where the magic lies, right? We're right at photon failures where things start to feel like what they look like to your eye. Um, so the being able to rip the top off the exposure is, it's great. It, it certainly helps you, you know, it'll, it'll be, um, um, it, it, it's just another hammer, you know, right. and, but, but, the question of like, okay, so you have a thousand nits, you know, so all the whites in a scene should be at a thousand nits? No. Like, I mean, a thousand nits is like, you got to choose your battles because um, it's, uh, it, it, it's, 
it, it's hard. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting yeah. on the pupils. Did you, um, were you, were you monitoring HDR on set? Yes. You were. Okay. Yeah. Well, and we did on Mindhunter on the second season of Mindhunter too. Um, Eric just, you know, had nothing to do during the off <laughs> season and decided to test every monitor that was out there. And it was a great thing because you start to really see, you know, as much as you can see what you're going to have to exploit and, you know, because we're oversampling like crazy, you know, there's no, there's no reason for 8k. We shot 8k so that we could repo and do stuff and, and, and smooth the moves. But I think in the end, you know, even though we have a 4k deliverable, I mean, we were, we were dialing the resolution from, you know, like a sumo Lexus are probably 150 line pairs in the corners. And we were, you know, down to 33, 40 line pairs. It was, we, we were squatting on the, on the picture in a big way. I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds really detailed. <laughs> I'm just doing it. I'm just trying to impress you. I'll give a shout out. I'll give a shout out right now. For our listeners who are interested in pursuing this, we do have a, a webinar coming up in a couple of weeks with Eric Messerschmidt and Eric White talking about the cinematography and, and the grade. They're their agony working with David on Mac. So take a listen or keep an eye out for that. So I, I know you guys have been super indulgent. We're way over time. I do want to show one more clip if you guys have just another minute because I think this is really fun. So this is this is um, the Orson Welles radio broadcast that comes at the very end of the film before we go into the uh, closing titles. Let's take a listen. Morning, gentlemen. Morning, Mr. Welles. You missed the big night. Well, I was unable to attend the Academy Awards because I'm here in Rio making a marvelous motion picture. Jane was nominated in nine categories, including Best Actor. Aren't you disappointed that it only won one Oscar? Well, that, my good man, is Hollywood. <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to say to your co-author, Mr. Mankiewicz? I do have a brief message. You may tell him from me. Mank? You can kiss my hat. <laughs> when this clip came through from Netflix, I had to say, I was like, wait, why did Ren send this? This is like, this is a real radio broadcast from 1940, what, 142? Uh, but it turns out the joke was on me. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's actually that. That makes me happy um, that you thought it was just a, the radio broadcast because it's it's uh, it's something that we fabricated. And it, what's interesting about it is that we we made it a few times. <laughs> we made it a few times, and the big difference was the initial build of it was largely the same, but the the order and some of the the dialogue was different. And then somehow, David, you can speak to this, but Dave somehow found. And this, by the way, this was never, the audio was never recorded. It, the only thing that exists no. is a transcript, correct? Well, it's, it, it's a conflation of two things. Um, okay. we, got some of, we got some of the dialogue from an actual um, radio press conference that he did for It's All True. And, um, and then the, the joke that he delivers, uh, Mank, You Can Kiss My Half, is actually a, a letter that um, Wells wrote to Mankiewicz afterwards that Mankiewicz received. Um, uh, Mank, congrats, you can kiss my half. Um, and so we wanted, to we wanted to put those two things together. 
as if you know, Wells had sort of tried this out in the press and then later sent. And, and, and uh, it was, originally there was a scene that we shot that had, you know, um, uh, Wells, you know, with a, a floral shirt, floral print shirt with <laughs> blowing palm trees in the background. And you saw, and you saw um, um, Rio in the background and this beautiful mo moonlight and there were showgirls and stuff. And we thought, eh, it's a bit much. And ironically, one of the things that was interesting was we were playing it back at one point and I think the monitor went out or something and it just went to black and we heard the, um, and I heard the original scene just against black. And I thought, you know what? He comes from radio. Um, he would have done this kind of press, you know, um, uh, going into a community to make a marvelous motion picture. Um, so let's, let's find Let's see if we can find um, uh, a, a, a radio promotional thing that he did from the time. And so we found one, we kind of grafted it all, Frankensteined it and made this moment. But it was interesting how much the feeling of closure um, was there when you didn't actually see Wells, when he became this disembodied voice again. He starts as a disembodied voice and then he eventually becomes a disembodied voice again. And, and, from Anquits, that was the case. Well, I never heard. I never heard the original. So there, there's actually a recording of it. No, there's a transcript of. Right, of just a, only a transcript. Yeah, that's and, what I meant. Right. No, but we shot a scene that was supposed of course, to be. Of course. And again, yeah. the scene was, you know, originally the 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 writers guild members' worst fear, which is that everyone else is having a good time and that they're trapped in a room with a typewriter. <laughs> and so we shot this thing as though it was this big party carnival kind of thing and here he is and he's he's going to give you five minutes but it seemed a little um it was it was more sadistic than was necessary but what was interesting was when i was watching it at one point and the picture went out and and i thought we, we're going to take him back to radio kind of works kind of works well. yeah yeah yeah, it was it was terrifying for for us because that's the same. <laughs> whenever David does that, uh, he did that on Zodiac, what we called the remember the the yeah. montage, the four minute, yeah. And so um, that was the reason why we chose it for you, Glenn, was that it it was that it was because David said that well, Orson Welles came from radio, he's going to return from radio, so let's make it a press conference. And David's came up with the idea of having a bunch of very sick people in the background coughing on squeaky wooden chairs. I just wanted it to sound like, the, it, it, there, there is a sound that like the HFPA or like, you know, there are, there are those, there are those mandatory press conferences that you have. Well, why would you, why are you coming to Iceland to shoot? It's like, well, you know, we came for the snow, but we're staying for the waterfalls. Um, and, and, and it seemed like the kind of thing that he would, I mean, he was like a gregarious showman. And, and, He's a showman. Yeah. And uh, just hats off to Tom Burke. 
I mean, I I didn't I didn't know if you guys had done some weird sort of merging with original Orson Welles recordings with his voice, but he sounds just like. I mean, I know you did some pitch shifting, right, to kind of just really a make little it bit, sit. not a, not not as much as you. I mean, he he got it really close, and and but more important than than the mimicry of it was just the force, the force of personality. That's right, you know. That's right. Well, David Fincher, Ren Kleiss, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us Thanks, about Mank and all of your other films as well. This was yeah, really- Yeah, sorry we got off on a, on a- No, I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, well, on that note, I think let's wrap it up. David Fincher, Ren Kleiss, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about Mank. This is an amazing film. And I have to admit, like, I'm just thrilled having read the script now, what, 25, 26 years ago, yeah. to finally get to see the film. Kudos yeah. to the both of you. Was it was it what you thought it was going to be? It was even better, David. <laughs> it's aged. It's aged like a fine wine. I loved yeah. it. It was great. It was great. I want to thank David Fincher and Ren Kleiss for joining us today. I also want to thank the folks at Netflix uh, who helped bring it all together and provided us those amazing clips to show. If you haven't already, cruise on over to Netflix and check out Mank. I have watched it already a couple of times and I know I want to watch it again after hearing about everything that they pulled off with it. The link for the film is in our show notes. This was a super fun episode for me to do uh, and we hope to bring you many more like this in the coming months. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to our new dedicated podcast feed, which you can find via the link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcast by searching for Dolby. If you enjoyed this series, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It really does help raise awareness for the series and helps us continue to grow. You won't want to miss our next episode where I'm joined by directors Rebecca Hall and Natalia Almada at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. They are the two recipients of this year's Dolby Institute Fellowship, uh, which gives them access to Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos uh, to complete their films. And uh, let me tell you, they have both used them in insanely interesting ways to tell their stories. So be sure to check out that episode. You'll be hearing a lot about these two very talented directors in the coming days and years. Until then, thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Sound and Image Lab podcast, which is brought to you by the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. The producer and editor of the show is Michael Coleman. The executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Copywriting is by Fayette Fox. Our production support comes from uh, Taylor Hines. And our Dolby Institute intern is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening.